Hello and welcome to the Health Advocate Podcast. My name is Rebecca Haddock and I am the Director of the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research here at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Diebel Institute, we are the research arm of AAHA and our mission is to help ensure that evidence is a cornerstone for health policy development in Australia. And we like to do this in a number of ways, but primarily through forming practical connections between researchers, policymakers and practitioners, and also by creating opportunities for our university partners to translate research into good health policy and practice. Today I'm speaking with Stephanie Pushka. Stephanie is currently undertaking her PhD studies through the Menzies School of Health Research at Charles Darwin University in the Northern Territory and also through the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the Australian National University here in Canberra. Steph is also the recipient of a 2019 Jeff Sheverton Memorial Scholarship, which has been established by the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, together with Brisbane North Primary Health Network and Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network to honour the excellence of Jeff Sheverton's health leadership. This award supports scholars to specifically develop a health policy issues brief on a topic relevant to primary health, mental health, aged care, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, or LGBTQI health. Steph, welcome to the Health Advocate podcast. Thanks. You recently spent six weeks with us here at the AAHA earlier in the year to write a health policy issues brief on improving access to housing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander renal patients' complex care needs. Before we discuss the brief, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your research and why it led you to the AAHA. Sure. Well, even before I started my PhD, so I was living in Darwin and as part of my job at the time, I got sent off to go and meet the manager and talk to some of the patients at at the renal unit and renal wards in Darwin. And there were people that I recognised there, not only people who were, you know, Aboriginal leaders, internationally renowned Indigenous recording artists, local broadcasters, but there were also people that I saw every day. And there were people that I saw every day on my way to work and they were sleeping rough and they weren't homeless for the stereotypical reasons that people often associate with homelessness. And so I was really intrigued and also worried and concerned about that. And I wanted to make that the topic of my research. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with end-stage kidney disease have a particular experience of dialysis. So rates of end-stage kidney disease are far higher in remote communities where there is much less access to services. Around 80% of all renal patients in the Northern Territory are people, Indigenous people who have relocated from remote communities to Darwin and Alice Springs for treatment. So I'm a medical anthropologist, so medical anthropologists investigate the culture of um, health systems and people's experience of them. And so that's what my research is about, the meanings and expectations of care of renal patients. So that was sort of my project. It came from sort of that imperative to sort of understand how people become homeless in the process of accessing health services. However, I realised in writing a dissertation or a thesis that that speaks to a certain audience and I felt that it was really important and I felt even um, had a responsibility to communicate to policymakers as well beyond that, but I just wasn't exactly sure how. And so you applied for a scholarship and you were successful and you joined us here at the AAHA. So what were some of the main recommendations that came out of your brief? 
So my brief is sort of about the interactions between health and housing policy and how sort of relocating to urban centres takes away a lot of people's sort of the basic needs of life, uh, material as well as immaterial. And yes, government cannot address all of those things, but I think government certainly does have a responsibility to address the things that uh, do fall within the realm of government services, and particularly housing. So at the moment, the public housing wait list in Darwin for a one-bedroom unit is actually longer than the average survival rate for somebody who's receiving dialysis treatment. And while people sometimes can access other accommodations, for example, through Aboriginal hostels, that's accommodation that's designed for people you know, visiting cities for and towns for short periods of time. And so people often do, and it's quite expensive, so people sometimes do end up homeless and sometimes are housed in hospital beds. I, I came across one patient who'd actually, she was blind, there was just nowhere for her to go, so she'd been living in a hospital bed for two years. So that's not great for patients, but it's not great for health systems either. So my issues brief is really about um, the need for dialogue between not only health systems and housing uh, systems or service delivery models, but also with consumers and really sort of develop working in partnership. And I've provided some suggestions some recommendations about ways that people could perhaps address the housing needs that health policy frameworks create. So I've looked at whether that could be possible through the NDIS. At the moment, the way that the NDIS is implemented, it doesn't always address all of the impairments that people may suffer. It's sort of got a quite narrow focus on sort of diagnosed disabilities rather than sort of impairments and social roles. So I've sort of talked about in my brief how, you know, people's experience of healthcare and health policies are culturally mediated and how those things need to be recognised. I provided some recommendations around a care package that could potentially be developed, something perhaps similar to the NDIS, but recognising the specific needs of renal patients. So Steph, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that package? Sure. So I think it's quite important that people who are responsible for renal patients' health care and not also the people that are making decisions about, for example, their housing, not only because those people probably don't have expertise in housing, but also because that gives that person quite a lot of control over people's lives. And I think it's important that people have sort of housing choices, you know, what suits one person might not suit the other. Often people have lots of carers and I think that's really important and my research suggests that people who have lots of carers around them are actually much less likely to have high rates of hospitalisation. So the, the housing needs of carers need to be recognised as well. So I think a care package is sort of something where people could integrate different needs, not only housing, but also perhaps funds to turn to country from time to time and any other sorts, you know, supports and services that people need. And one dimension of that could be um, sort of for those who Aboriginal hostels accommodation suits could be developing a model in partnership with Aboriginal Hostels Limited that addresses the specific needs of renal patients who may be frail and are probably going to be long-term residents and, you know, need a place of belonging. So are there any other issues in your brief that you'd like to touch on? So another area was the um, social security, social support for renal patients. So often people are eligible for a disability support pension or if they're old enough, an age pension. Not always necessarily a disability support pension, but in a lot of cases they are. However, the processing times for that can be six months, sometimes even a year. So in that period of time, people are living on new start allowance. 
So there's been lots of conversations lately about how New South allowance, you know, is well below the poverty line. People can't really afford, you know, a basic quality of life, sort of really any quality of life on New Start. And I think particularly you cannot afford to live at an Aboriginal Hostels Limited facility if you're on New Start allowance. But I think there could be some more work around adjusting the pricing model at Aboriginal Hostels as well. So Steph, to to get some changes made for these patients, we're going to need to see a lot of work across different government departments. Can, Can you touch on that and tell us a little bit about what you mentioned in the brief? Sure. So I think to take health and housing as the example again, so really there just seems to be a disconnect and there's not a lot of dialogue between those two departments. And for example, right going to the top of, you know, your big policy strategy documents like the Northern Territory Government's housing and homelessness strategy really doesn't address the sort of needs for housing that are created by health policies and really treats urban and remote housing as entirely distinct things, sort of ignoring the fact that people sort of travel between the two different times. Or perhaps they have some temporary housing or camping facilities for people who come for short periods of time from remote communities but really doesn't recognise the needs of renal patients. And when I spoke to housing and health policymakers at a high level, really there wasn't a lot of conversation happening or there weren't sort of forums where people were having sorts of dialogue and really people in housing just weren't aware of some of the housing issues. I think people in health were aware of you know, the lack of public housing but really just didn't feel like there was anything they could really do about it. I think just creating permanent forums where people can sort of you know, talk to each other in an honest way would be a good step. So just shifting topics sideways a little bit, Steph, do you want to tell us a little bit about remote services and what's happening there? Sure. So late last year, there was a new Medicare item announced for remote dialysis. So that means that primary care organisations such as Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations can claim Medicare for the costs of employing a renal nurse or an Aboriginal health worker who's delivering dialysis. So um, I think that's probably going to see an expansion of remote services, which is a really good thing. I don't think anyone could disagree with that. However, a caveat on that is that at the moment, medical protocols require patients who are the most unwell, who are considered unstable during dialysis, who may have lots of complex comorbidities. Medical protocols require those people to have treatment in hospital renal wards. So that is likely to put a break on some people from returning back to home communities and in the past it's even put a break on people who are dying who've entered a palliative state and have stopped treatment but they would like to return home to pass away with their families and in their home communities but they have not been able to in some instances because of the risk that they may die in transport and those sorts of things. So I think some of the risks that health professionals consider when they're looking at whether or not a patient can go home not only include some of those clinical factors, but it also includes things like whether or not people have access to not overcrowded housing. And so, um, you know, some of the concerns about um, people's ability to stay well in in a house. So I think in a way sometimes there's sort of a bit of institutional racism happens in that people have sort of suffer a double punishment for poverty and that they have live in overcrowded housing and that overcrowded housing then impacts on their ability to access health services as well. 
So I think, yeah, some of the medical protocols around people being able to access remote dialysis implicitly sort of have, or some, and also some of the decision-making around clinicians who oversee their care, there may be some sort of underlying structural racism. So it's not blatant racism that people are saying Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander are lesser people, but it's sort of underlying structures of society and sort of biases towards cities as being sort of healthy places for people, which, you know, perhaps they're not always that influences their access to to care sometimes. So if if you're interested in finding out more about Stephanie's brief, there's a copy available on the AHHA website. Steph, before I let you go today, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience that you had while you were here at AHHA on your scholarship. And I was just wondering if you had any expectations of the experience before you arrived. Sure. Yeah, it sounded like a really good opportunity to get some experience in like writing in a sort of policy sort of context. Obviously, I realise, you know, research policymakers don't always read academic journals. And so, you know, there needs to be another step if researchers are to communicate with policymakers effectively. I have to admit, I wasn't, maybe I had some scepticism about whether my brief would actually lead to anything changing in the long run or the short run for people. But through AHHA, I was able to actually meet with some senior policymakers, which I'm sure I would not have been able to set up on my own. And that gave me a really good sense of what policymakers were receptive to, what was going to be feasible, perhaps what was not going to be possible in the short term. But also it gave me some more ideas of other ways housing issues could be addressed. So that was really an inspiring aspect, I think, of the scholarship program that perhaps something actually was possible. And I also really appreciated the opportunity to sort of develop some skills in writing for government, which is not really something that I'd I'd done before. And it was fantastic to sort of be coached around doing that. So do you think your experience here has changed the way you think about your research? Yeah, I think it has. I think really thinking about perhaps shifted my thinking not so much from what the problem is to what possible solutions could be. I always try and sort of be sympathetic to people, whether it's senior policymakers or health professionals or patients um, in terms of, you know, the position that they're in and what they have to deal with and what's possible for them to do. But perhaps maybe it sort of brought out a bit more sympathy for policymakers and, you know, the difficult job that they do too. I'm sure they'd like to hear that. (laughs) So Steph, thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more information on the Deagle Health Policy Research Scholarships Program, you can find it at the AHHA website or follow us on Twitter at Deagle Institute or at Oz Healthcare.